Hi everyone and welcome to this podcast on SGLT2 inhibitors. My name is Jan Orford and I'll be your host today. I'd like to introduce Dr. Sulin Lau. Sulin is an endocrinologist at Westmead Hospital and Blacktown Mount Druitt Hospital in Sydney and a senior lecturer at Sydney Uni and Western Sydney Uni. She's worked in general diabetes clinics for many years and also provides an Indigenous chronic disease outreach service in Moree in rural New South Wales. She is on the Medical Advisory Committee for Diabetes Australia and is the National Coordinator of Endocrinology Advanced Training for the College of Physicians. As I said, today we'll be discussing SGLT2 inhibitors and we'll discuss the basics and learn more about recent literature. The learning objectives for this podcast will be, one, the learner will be able to describe how SGLT2 inhibitors work. Two, the listener will be able to recognise potential side effects and potential benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors. And three, the learner will be able to recognise the link between SGLT2 inhibitors and the prevention of cardiovascular and renal outcomes in people with type 2 diabetes. Hello, Sue. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. (laughs) Great. And thank you for coming along and spending time with us. Um, As I said, today we'll be discussing SGLT2 inhibitors as a class of medications. And what if you could please tell us a bit about SGLT2 inhibitors and how they work? Sure. So SGLT2 inhibitors, are, they're a relatively new class of diabetes medication. Uh, they've been around for maybe five or seven years. And um, they work by allowing people to get rid of glucose in their urine. So basically, I tell my patients that they make you pee out sugar. So they do this by blocking a special transporter protein, which is in the renal tubule. And this protein is called the sodium glucose transporter 2 or SGLT2 for short. So yeah, normally our kidneys allow glucose to pass from the blood into the first part of the kidney tubule. But in that kidney tubule, most of the glucose is then reabsorbed back into the bloodstream so that it doesn't come out in the urine. And it's these transporters, the SGLT2, that allow this reabsorption to occur. So if you have a drug that blocks SGLT2, then the glucose can't get back into the blood and stays in the urine. And of course, this is a very effective way of getting rid of glucose for people who have high blood glucose levels. But the benefits aren't just glucose lowering. So when you pee out sugar, you're also peeing out calories and less calories is a good thing for many people. So these drugs help people to lose a little bit of weight. And along with the glucose, the body also loses some extra salt and water in the urine. And this can be helpful for people with high blood pressure and heart failure, though it can also lead to some side effects. Thank you for that for that explanation. I'm just wondering who are SGLT2 inhibitors most suitable for and are there any contraindications in using this medication? Yeah, that's a, a good question. So, you know, obviously you need to pick your diabetes medications carefully to suit your patient. Um, so SGLT2 inhibitors are specifically for people with type 2 diabetes and perhaps best for those who desire weight loss or at least who want to avoid the weight gain that is associated with drugs like sulfonylureas or insulin. They also have some cardiovascular and renal benefits, as we'll talk about later. So they're a good choice uh, for controlling glucose in people who have heart failure and other cardiovascular diseases and diabetic kidney disease. Hopefully we'll talk about those more later. 
Now, some people do experience, you know, frequency of going to the toilet to pass urine with these medications. So I would think twice about prescribing them to people who already have troubles with urinary frequency. Um, and I guess for people whose jobs don't allow frequent access to the toilet, for example, you know, a bus driver or a taxi driver. I also wouldn't use them in people who have urinary incontinence or who wear incontinence pads or those who get really frequent genitourinary tract infections. I'm uh, particularly cautious about using SGLT2 inhibitors in the frail elderly because um, I mentioned, you know, people can lose salt and water and dehydration and hypotension can be a major problem and can lead to falls or even fractures. So currently, if you look at, on, you know, at MIMS, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors are not prescribed to people with severe chronic kidney disease. Um, that is an EGFR less than 45. And we don't necessarily think they're harmful in this situation, but they certainly wouldn't be as effective in lowering the glucose because if you've got renal impairment, your kidneys don't filter glucose that well to begin with. It's also really important to know that um, SGLT2 inhibitors are contraindicated in women who are pregnant, planning pregnancy or breastfeeding. And uh, at the moment, they're also not um, prescribed for children, although that may change one day. Thank you for that. So where does this class of medication fall in terms of management? Is it second or third line? And are there any PBS, are they PBS listed, I should say? And is it safe to combine SGLT2 inhibitors with other medications or even insulin? Yeah, this is, uh, I guess, a, an ever-changing uh, field of, of knowing when to use which which medication. And certainly that there are guidelines available. Um, there are ADS guidelines and there's overseas guidelines as well. Um, in Australia, most people would start um, with metformin as first line if they have type 2 diabetes. Um, but SGLT2 inhibitors are a good second or third line oral medication for people living with diabetes when the metformin alone is not enough. They can be used as dual therapy with metformin or with a sulfonylurea. And they could be used as triple therapy with metformin and a sulfonylurea or metformin and agliptin. And even in some cases, quadruple therapy with all four oral drug classes. Though I guess by that stage, you're wondering whether insulin might just do the job better and more cheaply. Um, you can use SGLT2 inhibitors in combination with insulin um, or with insulin and other orals. It's important to remember that they're not available on the PBS for co-prescription with GLP-1 agonists or with the TZDs, so the thiazolidine ions, and they are not available as monotherapy on the PBS. Uh, some people do like to use SGLT2 inhibitors with GLP-1 agonists, and this is quite safe. Um, however, because of the PBS restrictions, um, people will need to buy one of these on private script. And I, I presume you could also buy SGLT2 inhibitors for monotherapy on private script. Thank you for that. I think you've already mentioned some of these, but uh, I wonder what other potential benefits of taking an SGLT2 inhibitor? Yeah, yeah, it's good to go into that in, in a bit more detail. Um, the SGLT2 inhibitors, they reduce blood glucose, both fasting and post-meal. And they do this via a mechanism which is completely independent of insulin. Uh, because of this, there's a very low risk of developing hypoglycemia. And they can be used practically at any stage of diabetes because they don't rely on having beta cell function. The amount that HbA1c drops is proportional to how high it is to start with. Um, so people who have the highest HbA1c tend to get the biggest reduction. 
in trials where the starting HbA1c was around 7.5% to 8%, then the average HbA1c lowering was somewhere between half to 1%. I've seen much greater effects than this in people who started uh, with higher levels. Um, but anecdotally, at least, these people also seem to get the most polyuria. SGLT inhibitors are also beneficial for weight, as I mentioned. And on average, in the clinical trials, uh, people using the drug lost about two kilograms. Uh, in clinical practice, I've noticed quite a lot of individual variability. Some lose more, others don't seem to get much effect at all. Now, because these drugs also help you to lose salt and water, they do have some blood pressure lowering effect, but they're not specifically indicated for the purpose of uh, blood pressure lowering. The effect tends to be more on systolic than on diastolic blood pressure, and it's less pronounced in people who are already on diuretic medications, I guess, because they're already getting rid of salt and water through their kidneys. Okay, you mentioned earlier that SGLT2 inhibitors have been linked to primary and secondary prevention of cardiovascular and renal outcomes. I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that, please. Sure. So there's been some really important trials in the last few years, um, and I'll just go through a brief summary of their results. Um, so for canagliflozin, there's the CANVAS trial. For empagliflozin, there's Empereg. And adapaglifosin, there's Declartimi 58. Uh, now, I guess canagliflozin is not so easily available in Australia, but it's still uh, important to yeah, understand sort of the class effect of SGLT2 inhibitors. So in the CANVAS trial, canagliflozin reduced the primary composite endpoint of cardiovascular death, non-fatal myocardial infarction and non-fatal stroke by about 14%. Uh, this was in a population of people who had had diabetes for about 13 years on average, and two of them had pre-existing cardiovascular disease. In the EMPAREG trial, empagliflozin was used in people who all had pre-existing cardiovascular disease. So whereas um, CANVAS was mixed primary and secondary prevention, EMPAREG was a secondary provincial trial only. And this showed a very similar outcome to the CANVAS trial, um, all-cause mortality and heart failure admission were also reduced by a similar amounts. In terms of renal outcomes, both CANVAS and EMPAREG uh, reported a reduction in the progression of microalbuminuria. And for both these trials, the hazard ratio for a composite renal outcome, which included decline in GFR, progression to dialysis and renal death, was about 0.6. So that's you know, more impressive than the cardiovascular result. It's getting close to almost halving the number of events. So yeah, that was uh, certainly something that could be very helpful. In Declartimi, um, using dapagliflozin in people with established cardiovascular disease or those at high cardiovascular risk also resulted in nearly 50% reduction in the composite renal outcome of, again, reduction in GFR, need for dialysis and renal death. But interestingly, the Declartimi study did not show a reduction in the major adverse cardio cardiovascular events like the other two trials, but it did show a reduction in heart failure admissions with dapagliflozin. Okay, I suppose it's a good idea for us to look at the other side of the coin and ask you, are there any adverse effects of SGLT2 inhibitors? Yes. So as we talked about, the SGLT2 inhibitors increase the amounts of glucose, salt and water in the urine, and that has predictable consequences. So if you've got extra glucose in your urine, it means that it's a good environment for infections to occur. 
The main infection to worry about is genital thrush. Um, well, in, in men, we, we call it balanitis. Uh, the risk of genital infections is increased by about three to four times. There have also been cases reported of a very nasty infection called Fornia's gangrene. It's a multi-organism infection of the genital area. And I guess these cases have been reported in people using SGLT2 inhibitors. Some studies have shown an increase in ordinary UTIs as well, and others haven't. But certainly it's not as big a risk as for genital candidal fungal infections. So I usually tell people that they need to clean up really well after going to the toilet so that there is no sweet urine hanging around for the bugs to grow in. Now, because SGLT2 inhibitors also cause salt and water loss, these could increase the risk of dehydration and low blood pressure, especially in older people whose thirst mechanism doesn't work that well or who generally don't drink as much. And I remind people that they need to keep up their fluid intake when starting these medications. I've had a number of people complain that the tablets make them go to the toilet too much, but different um, people have different levels of tolerance to this. And I suspect it's the ones who eat more sugar that tend to pee more. Uh, there have been a couple of other adverse outcomes associated with SGLT2 inhibitor use in the studies, but we're not entirely sure if there's a direct causal relationship. So in Canvas, uh, there were twice the number of amputations in the canagliflozin group compared to the placebo. And these mainly involved the toes and the metatarsals. Uh, it wasn't something that they saw in Jardians in the Empereg study, but amputations were not systematically assessed. A couple of studies using canagliflozin and dapagliflozin also found an increased risk of fractures, especially fractures in the upper limb and rib fractures. But again, we don't really know why this is. Um, maybe it's because people fell over more. It seemed to happen quite early after starting the tablets, you know, way before we'd expect that there should be any change in bone density. So I guess the really good thing, though, about SGLT2 inhibitors is that they don't really cause much hypoglycemia and certainly not severe hypoglycemia. So despite the uh, side effects we've described, it still makes them a very attractive option for many people. Okay, so what advice do you give your clients when they become ill or even prior to surgery, perhaps? So SGLT2 inhibitors, they should be stopped during acute illness or surgery. I tell people that if they get a really bad cold or a flu that keeps them in bed, a high fever, a gastro bug or any other bad infection, they should stop the tablets until they feel better. It's also wise to stop if they're fasting or significantly restricting their diet for a prolonged time for whatever reason they might be doing. For any major operation where fasting is required and food and fluid intake might be reduced afterwards, the guidelines recommend stopping the SGLT2 inhibitors for two days before the operation and then on the day of surgery itself. And people can restart the medications once they're eating and drinking normally again. Now, this might lead to some deterioration in blood glucose levels, and it's particularly problematic if the person is taking a combination tablet. So using the trade names, you know, Jardiamet, Sigduo, Glixambi or Q-turn, they are all combinations of an SGLT2 inhibitor and another medication. And so if you stop the SGLT2 inhibitor, you end up stopping that other medication as well. I haven't really found a good solution to this problem. 
tell people that they should check their fingerprint glucose regularly and they may need to have a new prescription for the non-combination tablet or for another tablet such as a glyptin or a sulfonylurea. If it's only for a few days, it does seem like a bit of a hassle and I, I don't routinely do that, but uh, yeah, we don't have a, a good solution at the moment. Thanks for that, Sue. Um, I wonder if you can talk, talk to us about diabetic ketoacidosis and does it tend to occur when a person has normal blood glucose levels and how common is this and can it be avoided? Yeah, so um, obviously we normally associate diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA with um, people with type 1 diabetes who have high sugars and acidosis. Um, but SGLT2 inhibitors have been associated with the phenomenon of euglycemic ketoacidosis. This is a type of DKA which may be easily missed because the glucose levels are not elevated. And that's because the medication is still causing glucose to be lost in the urine, even though the body actually needs the glucose as a source of energy. And if it can't get the glucose, then it starts to break down fat, and that's what leads to ketoacidosis. So people present with the same symptoms as DKA. They have nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain, and shortness of breath. But because the glucose is normal, it might not be diagnosed unless someone suspects it and then checks the ketones, the bicarb or the pH. So we should always be thinking about checking ketones if someone is on an SGLT2 inhibitor and comes to the hospital or with surgery feeling unwell. So in the studies, euglycemic decay was not that common. If a thousand people took the medication for one year, then there'd be an equivalent of about five cases. Uh, this is double what they observed with the glyptin in those studies. But in real life, outside the studies, it's something that we see not infrequently, uh, maybe because you know people outside of the studies have more illnesses and surgeries, and some of them actually turn out to have type 1 diabetes or other forms of insulin deficiency. We know that SGLT2 inhibitors increase the risk of DKA in people with type 1 diabetes, and they're actually not licensed for use in that condition. Uh, there are some other potential risk factors for euglycemic ketoacidosis. Uh, so they include excessive alcohol use, uh, having a very low carbohydrate intake, and dehydration. It can, in fact, occur in people who are already taking insulin, but perhaps their insulin doses have been reduced or, you know, a doctor or someone has tried to take them off insulin to um, get onto orals instead, and it's not successful. So euglycemic decay is a reason why we tell people to stop their SGLT2 inhibitors when they are unwell, not eating or having major surgery. And when people are admitted, there are protocols to monitor the ketones in the wards and to give fluids as needed, and hopefully this prevents euglycemic decay from developing. Well, thank you, Sue, so much once again for your time today. It really has been great to talk to you. Thanks very much, Glenn. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> yeah, good to do that assistance. <laughs> Not a problem. Thank you. And thank you for those of you listening for the taking the time to listen to this podcast. And to obtain CBD credit for the podcast, please go to the ADA Learning Management System at Learning adea.com.au and complete a feedback evaluation. So until next time, it's goodbye.